You are now tuned into Virtually I'm Possible Presents Lazy Learning Land, where we teach teachers how to be lazier, yet more effective, to increase student performance while decreasing teacher burnout and stress. I'm your host, SDOT, which is the hostess that always gives you the mostest while doing the least. Today's episode is sponsored by Virtually I'm Possible's Teacher Pay Teacher Store, where you can get secondary math activities that are color changing, self checking, no prep, and no grading. Visit Virtually I'm Possible on Teacher Pay Teachers for all your lazy teaching tool needs. Now for today's episode. All right, so let's get into today's very exciting episode of Virtually I'm Possible presents Lazy Learning Land podcast. So today we're going to talk about the five lazy laws that every teacher needs in order to be the most effective teacher ever. So first and foremost, allow me to introduce myself. I am the queen of working and not working at the same time, better known as the most effective teacher ever. I am also the queen of learning gains for the bottom 25%, having successfully have students take remedial math with me one year and then go into honors the following year. I also wear a crown for having a high passing rate on standardized tests, generating a high percentage of students that earn concordance scores that are needed for graduation. So I accomplish all of this while being a teacher in Title I, inner city schools, if you want to be politically correct, but aka the hood. I've been teaching in the hood for over 15 years. I've only taught in the hood. So all of my successes have come from working in the hood. Why in the world do we even need lazy laws in the first place? Well, I can say that I needed them because I, you know, working in the hood is extremely rewarding, but it can also be quite draining just because you have so many other things that you're doing. You're not just the teacher. You wear 12 other hats in a day um, and it can be really draining. But in order for me to sustain some sort of energy and mental sanity, I had to develop some survival skills. And I don't want you guys to let this blog title fool you. I am very passionate about what I do and I give my students 110%. But I have learned to become very calculated and very intentional about the amount of energy I allow myself to exert day to day. Now, with that being said, I realized that I don't have the ability to graduate with over 180 high school diplomas from year to year. So by me recognizing that, that also means I don't have the ability to do more work than the 180 students that I teach in a given school year. All that kind of put into perspective, some of you may be wondering, well, how in the heck can being lazy as a teacher but still being effective as a teacher, how do you accomplish that? 
Like, how is it possible to leave work and not feel like your body has been completely zapped of every ounce of energy to still have to go home to your significant other, to your partner, to your spouse, to your fur baby, to your living, breathing human babies, and or even just to, you know, be a daughter, a son, a sister, a brother, a aunt, a uncle, a niece, a nephew, you know, how do you have energy to still go out and be the other part of yourself for the rest of the day? And I have five solutions for you. I have these five laws for you to help you to become the laziest, most effective teacher ever. And these, some of these solutions may seem kind of outlandish, but If you are a habitual workaholic, you may be like, this chick is just completely lost her mind. But I do challenge you to just listen full out and just kind of take everything in small doses um, because I really feel like there's something in this episode for everyone. And, um, you know, I just want you to kind of get into the mindset that Teacher burnout is really prevalent. Usually teachers don't make it past the four to six year mark before they change professions or before they just quite out don't give a dang anymore. And I've just really learned how to do my work on the back end so that I have more opportunities to relax on the front end when I'm actually in the classroom and actually in front of my students. So law number one is believe in child labor. Yeah, you heard me say it. Believe in child labor. Now, no, I'm not talking about making your students work at sweatshops for pennies a day. I don't even mean that your students need to leave your classroom every day with their hands cramping because they've written so much. But what I mean is creating a classroom structure that is extremely student-centered. And to me, student-centered is about collaboration, collaboration. And did I say collaboration? Because if I didn't, I meant to say collaboration. Um, Collaboration is one of the easiest ways to put the work back on your students. This does require you to put in some structures in place sooner than later. Um, You're going to have to start modeling some of these structures sooner than later. But, um, you know, it's still possible. So don't freak out on me if you are listening to this and you're like, miss, like I'm literally a whole semester in. How do you expect me to foster this culture of child labor? And we're halfway through the school year. Um, you can really do this at any time. Of course, the prime time is to start implementing it during the first two weeks of school. But again, it's never too late to actually start. Um, For different strategies on how to foster this culture of collaboration in your classroom, I do have another post. Um, It's about the rules to rule playing games in small groups. And it just kind of helps you to structure your classroom in that collaborative sense. So definitely check that one out, of course, after this episode. Um, But a rule of thumb when I have this culture or the structure of child labor is I do not teach and reteach. Instead, I teach, then I have my other students reteach, and I facilitate that process of my students reteaching. I also do not go to the board and explain myself 1,700 times a week. If there is even one student in the class that has the answer correct, if it's a bell ringer, if it's in the middle of class on a classwork problem, but I have a lot of students struggling with it, you know, I will have that student that 
got the correct answer to go up to the board and put their work on the board for the other students to see. I hear my overprotective teachers in the background talking about, what about those introverted students? You know, the ones that absolutely hate having to interact with another living, breathing human being. Um, You know, this structure can work for all types of personality students. If you do have introverted students, um, it, it can be done. You just have to create this structure with fidelity. You have to use compassion. You have to scaffold them and build them up into those different uh, processes that are a part of this child labor culture. But again, it is possible. You just can't uh, give them, you just can't give them an out, but you can give them help. You can give them encouragement. You can give them baby steps. Uh, What you can't do is just allow them to 100% not buy in to, um, to that structure of collaboration. Now, you know, standing at the board and solving the same problems for six periods a day for 55 minute periods each period, again, is a big no-no for anybody that's trying to be the most effective teacher ever. I mean, as a matter of fact, as a rule, I only give my students notes on that topic one time. So the day I give them direct instruction notes, man, I am on it. I give them kids 210% effort, baby. I do this because I know what's coming down the pipeline for them is they're going to be working harder than me. So I'm going to make sure that I give them everything they need. I'm talking, I give them gradual release. I give them step-by-step steps that they can use for solving those types of problems. Uh, I give them graphic organizers. I give them videos. I mean, I just, I, I go hard. We do vocabulary. We use color. Like I go hard. And I just, I do that, like I said, because I know they're going to be required to go back and do a lot of this on their own down the pipeline. And so I want to make sure they have everything that they need, because as you learn some of my other laws, you'll see why they need those bomb.com notes to help them based on some of these other laws. But, you know, let's keep moving. Uh, We're going to move right on along and we're going to get into law number two. Law number two says use a screen so you don't have to scream. So if you didn't catch that, use a screen, something with a screen, some laptop, tablet, computer. Okay. So that you don't have to scream at the top of your lungs Mm -hmm. or internally. Being that I am over this 35-year-old hump, I have literally had to come to grips with the harsh reality that most of my students were born with digital devices in their hand. And these kids actually don't know how to hold conversations using spoken words with people. Um, They most of the time don't even like people, but they can tell you an entire story in under 160 characters and they can memorize numerous many dance routines. So, you know, they're just a whole nother breed, right? (laughs) I do believe that skill and drill worksheets are necessary or just the concept of skill and drill is still very necessary inside of the math classroom today. But I also have a belief that there are other ways to create meaningful practice for your students. So I just feel like that skill and drill, meaningful engaging practice can actually 
coexist together. And if you use technology properly, then you can achieve that skill and drill with the engagement piece all in one. I do have a post that goes deeper into how you can take your worksheet problems and turn them into simple, engaging games and activities that don't require a device. Um, But you can check that out and then I'll be going deeper in other posts about how to actually properly use technology. But just one of the main things about using technology is you need to make it a one-stop shop for your students. Just because you put a screen in front of your students and they're quiet doesn't mean that learning is actually taking place. And I do believe that is a big misconception that, oh, if I have my kids on, you know, digitally working on problems, as long as they're quiet and working, then I'm doing a great job. And I just, that's one of the largest misconceptions ever. In order to really get the most bang for your book where the learning and the engagement are happening at the same time, you want to make sure, number one, that your students have notes on these topics already or on that particular topic already. And if they don't already have notes on it, I like to use Nearpod or quizzes. These are online sites that you can build in your notes as well as build in activities to engage your students. And these activities can be done individually at the student's pace, or you can use them to do it whole class at the teacher pace. So um, they're very functional. I absolutely love Nearpod and quizzes. So if they are listening, holla at me for, you know, some affiliate marketing or some ads because I love y'all very much. Uh, But back to it. The second thing about using that technology properly when you put a screen in front of your students is they should have access to immediate feedback. And also, drum roll please, a way to self-correct right after that problem. I mean, let's really just think about this. What good does it do your students if you give them 10 problems? They get eight out of the 10 problems wrong. And the only time they get help is after they have finished all 10 problems, which means they have reinforced the wrong processes eight times or more. They may have just got lucky on the two that they did get right. I mean, it's really not an effective use of your time or the student's time. And it's just not certainly something that the most effective teacher ever would do. So just make sure when you put a screen in front of your students that it's a meaningful experience for them and it's not just to keep them quiet. So if you haven't caught on, by the way, each of my five laws does have spinoff posts that dive deeper into how to implement that law with greater ease. And these spinoffs can be found in audio format here on the Virtually Impossible Podbean site or on my blog in written format, which can be found at virtuallyimpossible.net. It's spelled as impossible because there's no apostrophe. Please remember no apostrophe and that it is .net. Now moving right along to law number three, law number three, teach your students to fish, not just give them a fish. Now see, this law is a spinoff of the classic quote, if you teach a man to fish, he can eat forever. If you give a man a fish, he will soon die. 
<laughs> that was my philosophical voice if you didn't catch that. But all right, so you got me. I may have butchered the actual quote, you know, the word for word aspect of it, but I do feel like I, I hit it good enough for you to get a general understanding. So in order for me to bring this into the realm of education, I need you to just humor me for a moment. You see, if you teach your students how to think, they will thrive on their own. If you tell your students the answer, they're going to bother the heck out of you for help on every problem they don't understand. Forever. As one of my favorite childhood movies, The Sandlot, would say. Well, forever, not really, but forever as far as the rest of the school year, which really could end up feeling like an eternity, just if you've got 180 students needing help every two seconds. But I like to use this concept when it comes to helping my students be able to self-advocate for themselves and be able to properly ask for help from their peers or even from me and also teaching them how to properly give assistance to others. Because a lot of times when students interact with one another, you'll catch them saying, hey, you know how to do this? And somebody be like, yeah. And the way they help them is, huh, you know, they give them their paper so they can just copy the answer. Or they say, no, nah, the answer is uh, 13 and you put 32. That's usually how students help each other. And so I like this concept of teach your students to fish, not just give them a fish, because when they get help, they need to be t- being taught how to think through the process. And also when they are giving help to others, they need to be able to help that other person think through the process as well. So you are now creating that culture where your students know how to think for themselves before they actually come and ask for help. So again, a highly effective teacher will help make sure their students have the tools to feel confident enough, confident enough to go out into the world on their own and push through their task. Let's get into law number four. Almost there. Repurpose your worksheets into games or activities. Now, I can definitely say that a pretty crappy part about being a math teacher is knowing that 90% of my students already hate my class before they show up to my class. Like when they get their schedule and they see a math class on their schedule, it's like doomsday to them. And literally from the moment that they walk into your class, my class, if it's a math class, no matter whose class, you know, sure you're able to build relationships with these students using other tactics in order to get them to like you, the person. But sadly, they will still dislike math, the class. And it's really not your fault because there was some teachers long before you that planted and watered and grew the seeds of disdain that your students have towards math. And majority of the time, you're not actually able to teach them math. You spend most of your time begging them or even trying to bully them into solving the problems that they need to solve for the day. That takes so much energy. And I don't even think that most teachers realize how zapping that is to try to basically force math down kids' throats every day. So do everyone involved everyone involved in this a favor and turn those worksheets into games or activities. 
For ideas on simple math games you can play with your students using any problems, you can visit my post on repurposing your worksheets into games or activities. Um, these games require minimal setup. All you need is a whiteboard or chalkboard. If you have a smart board, cool, but not required. And I've got some games that you can turn any worksheet into a more engaging activity. Well, now we are on the home stretch, everybody. We have hit law number five, which is, by the way, one of my favorites. So law number five says, gaslight your students. That's right. I said it. Gaslight your students by answering their question with a question. So admittedly, like I said, this is probably my favorite law. It's actually kind of comedic to me personally. Um, I mean, just listen to the name. I'm literally telling you to be toxic to your students, right? That's what it sounds like on the surface. But before you cancel me, um, you've already made it this far. That's why I made this one the last one. So you've already invested this much time. Just hear me out, all right? Um, I do apologize in advance for anyone who has been in or who may be in a toxic relationship, I do know firsthand the trauma that goes with being gaslit by a toxic or narcissistic partner. Um, so it may not have been a partner. It could have been a friend or family member, boss, coworker, whatever the case may be. But if you encounter toxic or narcissistic people, gaslighting is definitely not fun. But in this sense of gaslighting, I actually just mean refusing to give your students direct answers. Don't answer them directly. When a student raises their hand and asks me, hey, can I come ask you a question? True, true story, guys. This is, this is how I do it. I reply, I mean, you can come up to me, but I actually may or may not answer you. And in all actuality, that is the case. I usually don't just flat out answer them. They ask me a question and I redirect them with multiple questions until they can come up with the answer themselves. And yes, I know you've got a classroom somewhere between 20 to 30 students. You've got a line at your desk or you've got six or seven hands up in the air. You don't have the time to sit there and spend three minutes answering this one child's question with the question when you've got other students in front of you. Again, like I said, there's a post that goes deeper in how to implement this whole gaslighting, answering their questions with a question technique. But I want to say, yes, I know it is easier to tell your students exactly what their mistake was. I know it's easier to tell them exactly what their next step should be. It's even very easy just to tell them, hey, change this number right here to this number. And if that's your style, I'm not going to knock it. I, you know, I'm not the boss of you. But that short-term ease that you are giving yourself will ultimately be creating a long-term handicap. And you will ultimately be creating a demand on you by your students. <sighs> Yet again, putting yourself further away from being the most effective teacher ever. So just to kind of bring everything home and conclude it, because we did go through all five of the laws, the all five of the lazy laws that every teacher needs in order to be the most effective teacher ever. And um, these five laws, 
have literally transformed my product, my productivity and my sanity while teaching y'all. I'm telling you, I work in the hood. I've only worked in the hood. That ish is draining. <laughs> but these laws have really transformed it to where I can leave work every day and still have some sanity, some peace of mind. Um, I wanted to share it with you guys because I share it with the people at my school site that actually, you know, listen, but you know, I wanted to be able to get it out to, to more people cause it works. And the, these laws may vary based on your subject area and also kind of what grade level of students that you teach. But what's the most important key to being the most effective teacher ever is to just increase the amount of responsibility that you put on your students. While you are in the classroom, those students should be exerting way more energy and putting in way more effort than you. So find ways to put the work back on the students. Find ways that you, the teacher, are doing the work on the back end so that on the front end, when you are in front of the students, your job is to simply facilitate. And see, all of this leads to more relaxing days. And literally, what teacher cannot use a more relaxing day where they've got a few extra minutes to work on grades, a few extra minutes to answer emails, a few extra minutes to just do something or just to even breathe and have a moment to themselves. So like I said, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in. So you tuned into today's episode of Virtually Impossible Presents Lazy Learning Land. And since there is strength in lazy, please be sure to like, Follow and subscribe to this podcast, to my blog on virtuallyimpossible.net, no apostrophe, and our social media platforms on Pinterest and Instagram, so you can feel at home among other lazy learners. And until next episode, remember, live long and lazy and never ever work too hard. This is your girl, S. Dot, signing off. Until next time.